Well, let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the Gospel according to John chapter 13, and we'll begin our reading at verse 21 of John 13 and go to the end of chapter 14, verse 14. So we turn first of all then to John chapter 13, beginning at verse 21. And there the word of our God says as following, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in the spirit and testified, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. The Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This Father reading of God's holy word may bless it to our lives. Notice also our text is to be found in the sixth verse of this 14th chapter, where Jesus says to Thomas and to all the other disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. After the proclamation of the gospel, we'll sing together from hymn 39, the stanzas 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Beloved well, congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, way back in my high school years, I was in the throes of puberty, as some of you can identify with, and I didn't know what exactly to do with my life. Well, one day there walked into the classroom a little man, a teacher, and he turned out to be a very, very gifted teacher by the name of Walter Pittman. Somehow, in some way, this little man managed to light a spark in my life. He broke through my rather self-centered state, and he ignited in me an interest in history and political science as well as in the English language. Not theology, by the way, that came later on. And the long and the short of it is that I will always be thankful to this man and for the fact that the Lord at a certain moment, a crucial moment, brought him into my life. After being my teacher for two years, he left and became a professor at Trent University, and later on he became the president of Ryerson University in Toronto. Now you might wonder, why do I mention him and why do I open a sermon by mentioning him or talking about him? Because it highlights the fact that many of us would not be where we are today if it were not for the instrumental role played perhaps by a parent or a teacher, or an elder, or a co-worker, and a friend. Think back for a moment in your own life, and perhaps you too can identify a person who had a special, special impact on your life. But yet, you know, in spite of the pivotal role that Walter Pittman played in my role, in my life, it pales in comparison, I have to say, to the role that someone else played and continues to play in my life. And if you ask, who am I referring to? Well, I'm referring to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, my Savior and my Lord. And I have to say up front, no one else can hold a candle to him. No other person has had such a life-changing impact on my life. 
And then I dare say that I'm not alone in experiencing this. Many of you listening and watching here this afternoon can say the same thing and make the same claim as I do. But yet, at the same time, some who are watching may be wondering about all of this and maybe asking themselves, why is it that when people talk about Jesus Christ, they grab for the superlatives? What's so special? What's so unique about him? Well, to answer those kinds of questions, it's perhaps best that we turn to a passage like we have before us this afternoon here in John 13 and 14, but especially in that verse 6 of chapter 14, because it highlights his uniqueness perhaps more than any other part of Holy Scripture. And so I'd like to preach to you this afternoon on the theme, the difference Jesus makes. And we're going to see that he is the way, that first of all. Secondly, he's the only way. And thirdly, he's the only way home. So the difference that Jesus makes. Well, beloved, we began our scripture reading in the middle of chapter 13, and a little after that part of the passage, you'll notice that we are into a matter of stunning transition here. Just before it happens, Jesus and his disciples are having this Last Supper together, and towards the end of this supper, it's obvious that something is going on between Jesus and Judas Iscariot. But most of the disciples either didn't clue in or they didn't understand what was transpiring. Peter gets to know because, of course, he makes use of John, the beloved disciple. But in any case, immediately thereafter, Jesus starts talking about going away. And then he starts talking especially about going away alone. And that immediately causes a stir among these disciples and even a certain degree of panic. Peter, of course Peter, immediately wants to know where Jesus is going. And Jesus tells him that, well, the separation will not be lasting, it'll be temporary. But that, of course, doesn't satisfy Peter. He wants to keep on tagging along. He doesn't want to let Jesus out of his sight even for a moment. And the same goes for the rest of the disciples, too, by extension. None of them like what they're hearing at this particular moment. And no wonder. You need to think about this. You know, all of these men, they have they've left everything behind. Family, friends, livelihood, hometown. Said goodbye to it all. They'd cast in their lot with Jesus, and they'd done so totally, and as we would say, they had pretty well burned their bridges behind them. Yes, and now they are here a few years later, and Jesus is suddenly talking about going away, about leaving them. The very thought is just too much to digest. There's instant heartburn, if not fear, and lots of uncertainty. And so more words, beloved, are needed. In the beginning of John, chapter 14, Jesus gives them a peek at, at where he is going, and, and he tells them about the Father, the Heavenly Father who has a house, and about the fact that in this house there are many rooms and that he's going there to that house to prepare a place for them. 
He even chides them and reminds them that they know the way to this place. But notice again, they're taken aback. This time Thomas speaks up and he blurts out in desperation, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And to that comment of Thomas, Jesus replies, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now I think we all need to stop for a moment and digest these words. What did Jesus just say? Well, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And you might wonder, did we hear that right? Did he really say that? Yes, he did. Their ears long ago and our ears today are not deceiving us. This is exactly what he says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now who else has ever said anything like that? Who else in history that you have heard about has said these kinds of of things, has spoken so what we would call egocentrically? Notice, I am. I am this. I am that. I am that. Can you think of any other people? Can you come up with a name? Is there even one name that comes to mind? Well, there isn't, is there? As I think about it, no one else that I know of in all of history has made these sorts of extravagant claims for themselves, not even Donald Trump. No one else has spoken so highly, so dogmatically, so comprehensively about himself. Some people would say so conceitedly about himself. You know, throughout history, we've heard People say ridiculous things like, I'm the greatest. You think of Muhammad Ali, the boxer, and people making other claims for themselves very conceitedly and so forth, but nothing like this. Oh, and just in case you think that this is me speaking, or this is the church speaking, or maybe the Heidelberg Catechism speaking, I would remind you very clearly, these are the verbatim words of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus says this. No one else. Jesus says this about himself. I think if we're honest we have to admit we're even as believers somewhat taken aback by the language here. We probably would have spoken in a more nuanced, perhaps a more humble manner. There's something, isn't there, about this kind of language that makes you sit up, take notice, and even squirm a little bit. It's just so dogmatic we would say. And yet, at the same time, it's also kind of refreshing, isn't it? You know, we've just been through an election campaign in British Columbia. There was a huge election campaign 
in the United States over the last number of months. And, and, and if you hear all the rhetoric, what do, you, what do you come away with? You come away with a lot of vague and imprecise and extravagant, unrealistic promises and commitments. You come away with a lot of empty speech. But that's not the way of Jesus. He speaks clearly. He speaks emphatically. He speaks unambiguously. First, he says to his disciples, I am the way. And in other words, he looks them in the eye and he says to them, I am your accessibility. People are always asking, how can we find God? How can we know the way to God? How can we have access to Him? Well, I am here. I have come into this world to answer those questions and to tell you that I am the way. If you want to know God, the Heavenly Father, then you have to go through me. Because I'm the way. And notice immediately thereafter, he says, I am the truth. And that's another way of saying there's another problem out there. There's a problem of reliability. How can we ever know that somebody is giving us the straight, unfarnished goods? How do we know they're not deceiving us, hoodwinking us, manipulating us? And again, you people need to realize, Jesus says, that I only ever speak the truth. I didn't come into this world to sell you a bill of goods. I didn't come to manipulate you. I came to tell you the way it really, really is. You can rely on me and on what I say, because I am the truth. And finally, Jesus says to, I am the life. And when he says this, Jesus is referring to the third major problem out there, which is not a problem with God or with truth, but a problem with death. He's saying, sooner or later, all of you will come to realize that life is filled with death. Everything and everyone dies. No one lasts and lasts and lasts. Here today, gone tomorrow. That's the lot of humanity and of the animal kingdom and of the plants. But know that I have come to bring life, real life, glorious life, eternal and everlasting life. I am the one who can take you through death and give you life. I am the life. Oh, and beloved, how often does the Lord Jesus Christ not return to these themes, and, and especially to this last one, because you can say that God and truth lead ultimately to life. In John 6, he says about his people, I shall 
lose none of all that He has given me, but raise them up at the last day. And in John 10, He says, I give them eternal life, and and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of My hand. And, And in John 11, He says, in the context of that great miracle with Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in Me will never die. You see, life, life, that's the ultimate promise of Jesus. And so taken together, then, the words of Jesus here are most remarkable, but they're also, in a sense, you might say, most challenging. For what are we going to do with these words? What are all of us listening, watching, going to do with these wonderful, surprising, stunning words? You know, there are some people who are inclined to dismiss these words as the ravings of a raging lunatic. Mentally deranged people, they will tell you, say, strange things. And they say that about Jesus. He's lost it. Gone off the deep end. He's lost it mentally. But you know, if you read the Gospels, you come away saying to yourself, No one has ever spoken saner, wiser, more penetrating words than Jesus. He can't possibly be insane because he's the sanest person who's ever lived. Others may be inclined to say, well, this is the speech of a liar, a charlatan, a cheat, a pretender. And I say to you again, weigh the evidence. So often what people forget to do, weigh the evidence, read the Gospels for yourself. Weigh His words, examine His deeds. See how he lives and speaks and acts and interacts and relates with others? And is there even one ounce of falsehood in anything that he says or does? Is there anything that smacks of lying or deception or corruption? Really, beloved, when you do that, there's only one answer to these words of the Lord Jesus, and that is that we need to accept them to embrace them, to believe them. Jesus is who He claims to be. He really is the way, the truth, and the life. He really is, you can say, our accessibility, our reliability, our our resurrection. He truly is the all-sufficient Savior Redeemer and Lord. Yes, and you and I, we all need to acknowledge this. And we need to, as it were, make Him the center, the focal point, and the love of our lives. 
every day. And we need to do so for another reason as well. Because look at the next part of verse 6. After saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus adds these words, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you thought his first words in this verse took the cake, well, what about this? These last words are even more difficult to digest and to swallow. And why are they so difficult? Because, notice, these words are so terribly, terribly exclusive. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, if Jesus tests our tolerance when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, then things become infinitely more difficult when he says, I am the only one. There's no other way to the Father except through believing in me. And I dare say that's not exactly a popular statement in these postmodern times in which we are living where, where all kinds of people are stumbling over themselves, politicians and teachers and philosophers, to be inclusive. You know, we have to include everybody. We have to be open to everything. We have to be acceptable to all kinds of ways of living, acting, and behaving. Indeed, there are all kinds of people who claim to be Christ followers, but who when they come to these words of the Gospel of John are busy taking out the whiteout and getting rid of these, what they consider to be terribly offensive words of Jesus Christ. You cannot say that, Jesus, that you alone are the way to the Father. And yet, beloved, if we're again honest with ourselves, there isn't any way around this. There isn't any way to avoid this. Jesus is saying here, and he's saying in so many other places in the gospel, that he is the exclusive way of access to God the Father. And that's not my conclusion. That's not my prejudice speaking, or some would say my intolerance. Now that's what Jesus himself says. And so what should we do? There's only two things you can do. Either reject these words or accept these words. And I would urge you, I would urge you, accept these even what many consider to be offensive words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only accept them, but make them part of your convictions. And that means also in terms of your behavior and when you, when you interact with other people, whether they happen to be atheists or secularists or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist, do not be afraid to lay before them the claims of Jesus. 
And of course, you're not to do that out of a position of arrogance or haughtiness, but out of a position of humility, humble obedience. Lay the gospel and the gospel's Lord on the hearts and lives of your neighbors and pray for them. And you know, the same goes for all do-it-yourselfers. Because today our world is filled not only with the claims of all kinds of different religions, but also with the assertions of many people, especially in our Western society, who think that they have it in them to save themselves. In other words, there are so many people today who claim they, they don't need Jesus because they can make their own way to the Father. All by themselves. Thank you very much. I don't need any help. They believe that one day they can stand before God and before His holy throne and they can list their deeds and point to their niceness and underline their respectability and be given the green light. They're so sure of themselves. How, how foolish. These people are building their lives and their future on on sand. You know what happens to sand builders? Jesus comments about that in Matthew 7. He says, the rains come down, the streams rise, the winds blow and beat against that house, and it falls with a great crash. So the question is, on what are you building the house of your life? Is it on sand? On the slippery sand of your own achievements? Or is it on the rock? Which is Jesus Christ. I tell you, if you are building it on sand, then you better get ready for the crash, because it's sure to come. But on the other hand, if you choose for the rock, which is Christ, get ready to survive, and not only to survive, but ultimately even to thrive. Well, look, there's one more element in our text to take note of, and that is the context. You might wonder at this point, well, why does Jesus bother to say all this? Why is he so bold, so confident, so offensive even? Well, in a way, it has everything to do with that house that's described in chapter 14, verse 2. Why is Jesus going away? Why does he begin now at this point in the Gospels to walk in earnest down the road of suffering, arrest, trial, torture, crucifixion, and death? 
And we ask ourselves, why doesn't he just skip all the nasty stuff? Why not go straight home right now? Well, it's because he has a task to do and a people to save. You know, in the beginning of time, the Father and the Son agreed that Jesus would come into the world in the fullness of time and that he would come into this world to redeem for himself a people and that he would do that through suffering and deaths, through paying the penalty of the sins of his people. Yes, he would do that and more. For his calling is not just to save this people, but ultimately his calling is also to bring this people home. To his disciples then and to all of his followers today, Jesus declares, in my Father's house are many rooms. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And I will come back and I'll take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. And that now, congregation, is what Jesus is doing today. He's preparing a place for his people. He's getting things ready for the greatest family reunion of all time. He is home And he's making that home ready for us. And so wrap it all together, and what do you have here? What do you have in the person of Jesus, in in the work of Jesus, in the words of Jesus, in the promises of Jesus, in the power of Jesus? You and I, we have someone who makes all the difference in the world. And the world today and the world tomorrow. Truly, we have someone at last to believe in and to build our life upon because he really does make all the difference in the world. Do you agree? Do you believe in him? Do you live in humble daily dependence upon him? That's the question. Amen.